Well, not all that long ago, the only court TV show that was available to watch on television was none other than The People's Court, and some of you were called Judge Wapner. I just like to say the name, Judge Wapner. I think the show is in part a success because of that in the early days. You can see Judge Wapner up on the top here in the picture. Since that time, there have been lots of other people, who uh, judges who've made it onto television, Judge Judy, Judge Mathis, Judge Joe Brown, Judge Hatchett, Judge Alex, Judge Penny, Judge Je uh, Faith Jenkins, Judge, I could go on and on with judges. Um, you know, we've got judges everywhere. We have judges on The Voice, ju you know, we judge dances now. I, this, the whole concept of justice when it comes to every aspect of life has increasingly permeated our society. Just a growing interest in it. And it's interesting that uh, with all of that present, uh, it's, the scriptures paint this picture of there really being only one who has the right, the authority, uh, the responsibility for that matter of judging. And he alone is just. And of course, I'm speaking of God. And because he is God, his perspective on justice and right and wrong and fairness and so forth, I mean, all these kinds of things, it becomes important that we understand what his perspective of all of those things are. And so this morning we're going to look at uh, Scripture, and we're not going to try to cover all aspects of God's view of justice this morning. Uh, that would be a few weeks series. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at one of the Bible texts that gives us a glimpse into several view of God's viewpoints on uh, areas of life that relate to justice. If you have your Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at the parable of the vineyard this morning. Because Jesus communicates God's view on several important areas of life here. Some of these may surprise you. Uh, some of them, you know, probably just affirm what you would have expected. But my, my hope is that as we look at this, uh, we'll walk away with a little better understanding of who God is, how he thinks. And here's what's important. The temptation, the way you hear how I think about things or I hear how you think about things. And in our culture, what do we routinely do? We say, oh, well, that's interesting. Nice that you think that way. That doesn't work for me. So it's not how we this is how we do it. If there's one judge, and one before whom we will all stand accountable someday, is that how you listen to his view of things? Just think, of course not. If, if his view is the standard, the expectation, then you listen to what he says with a from a different frame of reference. You think to yourself, I guess that my, how I think of this independently is out of alignment with that. I need to work on that and rethink how I think. This is, when you have a holy, righteous, just God, you, you shift how you view justice. Your view of justice has to morph to match his. Do you track with me? If he's the one who created you, if he created life, he created everything that we ex experience in the world, everything good and wonderful we experience, created by him, then doesn't just make sense that how he views justice or any aspect of that subject, it just makes sense that he knows best how to live. And if that's how he thinks, even if it's contrary to how I now live and think, that maybe I need to shift some in that direction. That's, that's what scripture's appealing to us to do repeatedly. Jesus appeals to his followers to do that. And this morning as we look at Matthew 20, I just want to appeal to you to think that way, okay? Matthew 20, let's start at verse 1 and uh, listen to this parable. 
Um, if it's unfamiliar to you, I think you'll, uh, you'll uh, remember it in a lot of, for a lot of reasons. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. And at nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. And so they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some, some more people standing around. He asked them, why, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. Landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. And when those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. They were part of the vineyard harvesters union. Is a they assumed that they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. And he answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. We can spend a lot of time talking about these verses because this runs very contrary to how our culture thinks right now, how many of us think are inclined to think. But in this parable this morning, what I want to do is I want to highlight four viewpoints of God with regard to several areas of life that uh, Jesus draws out here. All of them, um, I should say most of them, relate to the whole justice idea in some fashion or form. And you'll see that as we work our way through the passage. But what I want to do is I just want us to look at those viewpoints. And I just want to encourage you to evaluate if that viewpoint aligns with yours. And where there's misalignment, my encouragement to you is wrestle with what Jesus says. And begin to think, how would the world be different if, if I brought my viewpoint more into alignment with his? It'll help you. It'll help you understand God better. And honestly, it'll make our world a better place over the long haul. But let's walk our way through this passage together. The first viewpoint that Jesus highlights here is God's viewpoint on agreements Agreements. If you want to take notes, that would be the first word to write down. Viewpoint on agreements. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 2, and, and verse 4 for that matter, the landowner agreed to pay the, the normal daily wage when he hired people to send them out in the field. And he just agreed to do that as the day got along. If you, if you look, what he says is, I'll pay you whatever's right. That's what he tells them later in the day. But at the end of the day, the landowner, if you track through the parable, as Jesus tells us, the landowner met or exceeded every promise he made. He paid what he, what he said he would pay or he paid them more. That's what he did. Now, Jesus is trying to communicate something to his listeners then, his listeners now, in doing that. He wants us to understand that God will do the same for each of us. He wanted his apostles to get that idea. 
his followers at the time. He wanted us to get that idea. You see, the disciples were concerned about that. Uh, we think we've sacrificed for God sometimes. Uh, they have really sacrificed for God. In fact, just moments before this passage, this parable, Matthew 20, verse 1, in, in Matthew 19, verses 27 to 30, just the verses just preceding this, Peter and Jesus have been in a conversation. Peter said to him, verse 27 of chapter 19, he says, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? He's just saying, what, what's going what's to come of this? And Jesus replied, verse 28, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon His glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And listen to what he says, everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. Many who are greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. And right off of that dialogue is when Jesus springs into his parable. I want you to notice in these verses, verses 27 to 30, do you notice God's contract, his agreement, if you will, with the apostles, with his followers, with Everyone who sacrifices something of value for his sake. Do you see the agreement? He promises eternal life, right? Is that where he stops? No, he doesn't stop there in the text. In fact, what sometimes happens is we think that the reward of following God in life and sacrificing for him is just going to be eternal life and somehow we just... It seems so far away to some of us, particularly in our younger years of life, you just think, oh my goodness, that's way out there. i got a lot to do between now and then. And it just seems remote and distant. But what Jesus points out here is that everyone who's given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake, if you've given up assets or significant relationships, if you've given up notoriety and prestige and prominence and these kinds of things, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you eternal life and plus assets and significant relationships and greatness, in fact, a hundred times as much. I think Warren Buffett likes hundred times returns. I think most of us who invest in anything, we like hundred times returns, right? The accountants among us are shaking their heads, all of them. You know, just as the landowner met or exceeded his end of the agreement, Jesus is saying, so will God the righteous judge. After all, he is righteous. He's just. He always does the right thing. And in fact, the real issue is, I, I think, the implied issue that Jesus is kind of asking without asking of his followers is, will you trust me in this? Will you believe me? That every home you've given up, that every relationship you've sacrificed for the sake of, of my name, my kingdom. Every, every time you sought first the kingdom of God and had to give up a relationship or money or prestige or something else, will you trust? 
They're like, I will bless you now and in eternity. Will you trust me? God's viewpoint on agreements is He's going to meet or exceed every one of those. And you see Him do it in the parable, and Jesus is implying through that that He will do it in your life too. Do it in your life too. Second viewpoint, God kind of draws out, Jesus draws out um, here in this passage about life and some of the important things of it. And this only tangentially relates to this whole subject of justice, but it just really flows so clearly out of this. Jesus reveals God's viewpoint on the spiritual harvest that surrounds us. The spiritual harvest that surrounds us. And it's not what coincidence he's talking about a vineyard and may not have occurred to you that as much as uh, you've read this parable, but for, you read this and you've got a landowner who keeps hiring people all stinking day long, right? It's five o'clock and he's hiring people, sending them out in the harvest. Why on earth would you do that unless you're just crazy? Well, you might do that if the harvest is absolutely, if you are slammed with the harvest and you're trying to figure out how do I... How do I harvest every grape that I can possibly get out of this field because it's going to rot if I don't? And so you're hiring every... You're looking for people with a pulse. That's what you're looking for. You're not looking for gifts, the most gifted harvesters. You're looking for a pulse. Get out there. Get at it. And a landowner would do that because of the sheer size and worth of the harvest. You know, this was an intentional metaphor on Jesus' part. He wanted the apostles then, he wants us today, to think about the size, the scale of the spiritual harvest that surrounds us. And in Luke, Jesus uses the language, the fields are white unto harvest. He's talking about wheat in that instance, but he's just painting this picture. It is harvest time, and we need to get at it, because whatever is not har harvested, guess what? It's lost. It's lost. To stick with the metaphor that Jesus picks of vineyard, God wants us to understand, Jesus wants us to understand that God's vineyard is the world. And there are seven billion grapes, if you will, on the planet. And he wants every one of them. He paid for every one of them with his shed blood on the cross. He wants every single one. And so he's just employing everybody he can to get out into the harvest field. And if you noticed in the parable, all who labored in the harvest field received a reward. Every single one of them received payment, blessing, reward. I think that's significant because Jesus wants you and me to understand that every one of us who invest time, energy, resources, whether it involves sacrifice, and most of the time it does along the way, it's going to involve sacrificing something, but he's just saying everybody who invests in the harvest is going to reap a reward. Every one of us. You may not comprehend this side of payday, if you will, what that's going to look like, 
But the fact is, all who labor are going to be blessed. There's a reward for those who labor. Jesus reveals God's viewpoint on uh, another area of life here in this passage. He reveals God's viewpoint on fairness. Fairness. So, you know, you've got the first one, remember? Agreements, a harvest, fairness. He's talking about fairness here in this passage, which our culture is obsessed with. I'm convinced that's part of why the court TV programs proliferate like they do, because we are all about fairness, very much about fairness. But I want you to look at this passage. Did the landowner pay everyone the same? One word answer. Yes and no. Right? It's, that's, I, I'm sorry, I don't like trick questions either, but it's, it's sort of a, he did and he didn't, right? He paid him the exact same amount, yes. But he paid them for different amounts of work, right? Some started at five, some started at the break of day. As they said, working in the scorching heat. It always makes me laugh when I read that parable because I think, you know, in our day, it would be a woeful understatement to say, we worked all day in the scorching heat. We think of how, I mean, how we embellish things. I mean, the scorching, sweltering, you know, it's just like my life was at risk in the heat. I mean, think of all that we would do, you know, to try to paint the picture, the graphic nature of how I labored and these other lucky bums who just like worked an hour and pff, slackers. I mean, this is, this is what we would do in our culture to try to, to justify the fact that, that this is unfair what took place. But I want you to look again at the passage because I want you to see this real clearly. Ch chapter 20, verse 10, start right there. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. And when they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. And he answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? What was interesting to me as I was reading this this past week and working on this message, it just dawned on me how in our, there are those who would like to change the laws of the land where, yes, it would be illegal to pay somebody in this case. But at this point, it's not illegal. And is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Shouldn't you be or should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? Here, here's really the point. The landowner fulfilled his agreement with everyone. Did exactly what he said he would do. But he exceeded the expectations of some. And those had a problem. The ones who didn't get the, ex didn't get the excess had a problem. Where have we seen that before in biblical history? The Jews received that which God had promised, but when grace came to the Gentiles, the Jews were offended. We're the recipients, those of us who are of Gentile, not, not Jewish. We're the recipients of the excessive, 
extravagant, outrageous grace of God. Now the truth is, did the Jews deserve God's grace? One word answer, no. Did the Gentiles deserve God's grace? No. But it's God's mercy and grace. He's the one that we sin against. Is it not right that he be generous if he wants to be generous? After all, he's the one who's been offended. God, the righteous judge, is behaving this way with people just like us all the time. Another illustration that maybe helped put us in the other shoes. Uh, great biblical illustration, in my estimation, is Barabbas. Some of you remember Barabbas? If you haven't uh, thought about him for a while, read, uh, read the New Testament, read uh, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in particular the latter chapters, you'll run across Barabbas as you read there. He's sentenced to death for murder and insurrection in Jesus' day by the Roman authorities. And on the day that Jesus himself is sentenced to death, you remember what happens to Barabbas? He's set free. They substituted Jesus for Barabbas. I mean, Jesus got the punishment that Barabbas deserved, and Barabbas got the freedom that Jesus deserved. And here's the point. If Barabbas humbled himself, repented of his sins of murder and insurrection and whatever other horrific things he had done, because he was a bad guy if you read Scripture and, and, and read history. If he repented of his sins, if he invited Jesus to be a Savior and Lord, guess what? Someday you're going to meet him in heaven. It's a little troubling sometimes, particularly if you roll the clock forward and say, insert names like, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, insert names like, you know, you just think of some of the horrific things. I, I read a book not long ago on uh, these, it's, I grew up in Oklahoma, so I read this book about the Osage Hills area and the, the Osage Indians and just the things that were done to them here not all that long ago. In the early 1900s, 1930-ish, oil-rich, people murdering them strategically, some of them spouses in order to get money and so forth. You read this, it's just like unbelievable. You think, wow. Some of those people could come to faith in Jesus who did horrific things, and you just think, how can that be? That's unfair. But here's the truth of the matter. God forgives me, he forgives Barabbas, he forgives Hitler, he forgives others if Hitler would come to faith in Jesus, forgives you the same exact way. And that's not unfair, it is this, God is simply more generous with his grace and kindness than some of us would be inclined to be. Do you track with me? Which ought to be good news for all of us because... Every one of us is, stands before God in desperate need of more grace than we think we do. I'm more broken than I realize. I'm more in need of mercy than I realize. And God who is merciful just doesn't bother to point that out obsessively to me or to you. God the righteous judge is going to be more than fair with each of us. 
just may be more obvious in some instances that he's being more than fair, being more extravagant. So it's important that we understand God's viewpoint on fairness. Fourth viewpoint that Jesus draws out of this parable is God's viewpoint on greatness, importance. It's interesting in verse in chapter 19, verse 30, that last verse just before this chapter, chapter 20 begins, Jesus says to the apostles and listeners, and he says, Many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. That's the beginning of the parable in this whole discourse. And as he ends the parable in the discourse, look at what he says in chapter 20, verse 16. He ends the parable with these things. So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. Here's why I believe Jesus concluded or began and concluded. He kind of made an Oreo sandwich of this parable, if you will. We're talking about the, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And he kind of does this sandwich thing with this passage. Here's why. The apostles who'd given up so much, I think, believed to the core of their being that they were insignificant, they were unimportant, felt like they were not making a dent in that era of their lives compared to the scribes, the Pharisees, the rich, the people who really wielded power and influence in the culture and in, in the time. And Jesus wanted them to understand that was not true, that appearances in this case were deceiving They were of unbelievable importance to God, unbelievable importance to his plan and to the harvest. And and just as they needed to comprehend that, you do too. I do too. I think the temptation for most of us is to think, you know, I'm trying to live for God. I'm trying to make a difference. I'm trying to to influence people in my sphere of, of relationships and my own family for Jesus, and I'm just getting nowhere. I feel like I'm praying and there's no change. And um, God, what is going on? And the, and the evil one whispers in our mind and our spirit, you know, you're just, you're just missing it. You're not making any dent whatsoever. Way to go, loser. This is what he whispers in our spirit. All the while, God wants us to understand. The righteous judge of the heavens and the earth wants us to understand. You may feel like the least important. You may feel like you're last in everything. But if you are living for Jesus and if you're sacrificing for him, promotion, recognition, reward are in your future. I mean, that is on the horizon for you. Regardless of what anybody else whispers to you or says openly to you, God is good. God is for you. You are great in his eyes. You are important in his estimation. When he looks at you, he thinks winner. And he's just saying, trust me in this. That's what Jesus is saying. Trust me in this. Now, with all of that in mind, I want to close uh, this parable and our time together with this thought. You know, Jesus came to help us see and understand that God, the righteous judge, is not our enemy. I mean, he really is our friend, our redeemer, our advocate. He's our savior. He's on our side. 
And I want you to listen to how Jesus summarizes some of this in another place where he says this in John 3, starting with verse 17. Listen carefully to how Jesus says it this way when he's not in parable form. He explains, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. Just think about that. Let that sink. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to what? Save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. Why don't they they come out in the open? Why don't they confess sin? Why don't they acknowledge what they've done? Because they're afraid their sins will be exposed is what Jesus is saying here. Verse 21 says, But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. The appeal of Jesus is this. If you will put your faith, your trust in Him, there is no judgment for you. There just isn't. There's only the promise, reward, recognition, promotion. I've often thought about this. I thought probably in heaven, God won't spend a great deal of time saying, I mean, if it was you and me, we would spend a lot of time saying, oh, if I'd only done this, if I'd only done that. I mean, we're famous Monday morning quarterbacks and assessors of what could have been and feeling heaping guilt on ourselves because of that thing. But in eternity, I don't think God's going to spend a bunch of time doing that. He will spend a bunch of time celebrating the portion of the harvest that you played a part in harvesting. That's what he'll do. And there'll be reward and recognition and promotion because you just didn't waste all your time. You invested some of it and things that really do matter and things that really do last. So will you, will you open your heart to him? Will you invest in the harvest, harvest everybody that you can, everyone you come in contact with? If God's calling you to sacrifice in some way for his kingdom's purpose, will you do it, trusting that he can provide everything that you're going to sacrifice and a hundredfold more than that? If he, you know, he, he will certainly in eternity. He might do it in this life. In fact, you find out many times in Scripture he does. He can't even wait till eternity to reward you. He does it now. Maybe there's something else that God's talking to you about this morning through this passage, but will you just open your heart to what he has to say and give your heart to him? He's the only righteous judge, and he's on your side. Let's stand together. We're going to close in prayer this morning. Maybe there's something that you do need to confess to him this morning. Maybe you need to acknowledge him as your Savior and Lord. Maybe there's, some, maybe there's something you'd like one of us to pray for you about. We'd be happy to do that. I hope that you'll open your heart to him and just listen and receive what he wants you to hear, and who he wants you to become this morning. Let's pray together and then we'll be dismissed. We'll pray for anybody who wants prayer afterwards.
Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your faithfulness, your generosity with your mercy and grace. Father, on one level we understand it, and yet we know that it goes beyond our full comprehension and grasp. But we thank you for it. Help us to not be worldly in our estimation of your goodness. Help us to recognize, God, that you and your goodness exceed our full comprehension. And we can become good like you if we'll just humble ourselves and follow you fully. There are ways that you want us to sacrifice, lead us to do that. If there are people in our sphere of relationships that you want to reach out to through us, would you speak to us about that? Just help us to have the courage and faith to walk in that direction. And would you show patience toward us and just continuing to, to draw us and nudge us in that direction? Pray, Lord, that you'll just help your word and your ways to permeate our lives. Father, with regard to material things, would you help us to recognize that the stuff that we have and the things that we enjoy are not, ultimately they're not ours and we don't even get to keep them in this life, but we'll inherit things of far greater worth and value in eternity. And you are generous and good now and you will be then. Help us to trust you with that. Would you remind us of our worth in your eyes, O oh God? That the least will be the greatest. And that those who really think that they're all that will one day come to understand that you are the only one that is truly great. Father, we look forward to that day as well. Would you go with us as we leave this place with the words of Jesus, the words of Scripture, the words of your Holy Spirit within, where they echo in our minds and guide us in your path. And we'll rejoice to walk in it now and for eternity. Go with us as we leave this place with this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.